Hello, and welcome to the 33rd episode of the LI Law Podcast. I am your host, Zahava Schechter. The premise of this podcast is to feature issues, developments, and topics affecting the law and how it relates to the 8 million of us who live or work on Long Island, New York which includes Nassau, Suffolk, Queens, and Kings Counties. If you live or work on Long Island, this podcast on local and state legislative and judicial decisions is for you. Our guest on this 33rd episode is Rebecca Sassuni Esquire, a student advocacy attorney based in Great Neck, whose clients are students with various problem situations in school settings. Ms. Sassuni will discuss with us the importance for parents of having an advocate in their corner to negotiate school classifications and placements, as well as deal with IEPs, suspensions, and disciplinary proceedings. Please check out the show notes for a full list of Rebecca Sassuni's credentials and contact information. Please also keep in mind that we will not be providing legal advice to any specific questions. Rebecca, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Zahaba. Thanks for having me. Rebecca, please tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you come to specialize in student advocacy law? I uh, went to law school back in the 1990s, graduated, went to a corporate law firm, and uh, pretty much followed that path and then retired for a period of time during which I became a parent. It was only after I became a parent and had children in schools and friends who had children in schools that I came to understand that there is a body of law that governs students in schools and their relationship to schools, whether private or public, whether preschool or elementary or high school or even college and graduate schools. Is this state law we're talking about? It's actually an intersection of state and federal law. There are federal laws which guarantee students a free and appropriate public education. And then the implementation of those laws also has a state effect. So you have the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. You have the Families Education Rights and Privacy Act, FERPA. And these federal laws impact the experiences of the students in the the settings I just described, whether public or private, whether little children or all the way up to graduate. And where does the school district come in here to implement the federal and state law? Public school districts in the state of New York are obligated to federal law. And they're also obligated to New York state law and the regulations which uh, are implemented by the state. And so everyone is affected by these laws. But again, most parents would not even think about that um, when they are just enrolling their children for the first time. And it could be years into an education or at the very beginning before they ever intersect with law. So is student advocacy law the same thing as school law or education law or are there differences? As far as I'm concerned, they're one and the same. I think most people when they think of school law, if they think of it at all, Um, are probably thinking about it from the school district side, meaning the institutional side. And so, of course, there are law firms, um, larger and even um, some small ones, but mostly large law firms that represent the interests of school districts, which, of course, when you follow the logic and the money means the interests of taxpayers in terms of containing costs. And generally speaking, uh, my clients are students. Really, it's their parents who retain me to represent the students. And unfortunately, sometimes the interests of a student are not um, the same as that of the district. Unfortunately, sometimes there are cross purposes and we try to figure that out together. And the interest of the school district in containing 
cost, that would mean a negative uh, decision as to whether the child is entitled to certain services. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, before I go to that, I, th I think just to pan out for a moment. So when a family has their child in school, they may or may not understand through their own resources that their child needs special education classification or a 504 plan, which is another federal law, 504 Rehabilitation Act, which also applies uh, to all the students I referenced before. And so the burden is on a school district to identify that child and to bring families along through consensus, ideally, to help identify what a child's needs are and provide services and accommodations so that the child can receive that free and appropriate public education that I just referenced. Unfortunately, some families, for whatever reason, don't even want their children classified or sort of are oppositional when a district identifies. In other instances... Is, is that due to stigma? They're afraid that the child will be stigmatized? Often there's stigma attached or a sense um, for whatever cultural reasons or just ignorance of what's available, frankly. It's not obvious and it's often not really explained. So some families need help just to even accept classification. Now, of course, there's 12 different ways to be classified. So it's not enough to say that a student is disabled or has a learning disability. There are specific areas for which they can be classified. And there again, there's a lack of information often. Do you find in your experience that it is the school district which first finds the disability or is it the parents who notice it and bring it to the attention of the school district? You know, it's really both and in a perfect world. They would happen at exactly the same time, and the families and the school districts would work in lockstep, and that would be very nice. Often, though, families don't have the vocabulary or the knowledge to know what it is that their child lacks or has trouble with. By the same token, legally, the burden is on the school district to do that identification, and there are threshold issues of whether a school district has even met that obligation. They call it the child find obligation to identify that a particular student needs to be classified and services which follow. Okay, and what are examples of some services available to students in the school districts? Oh, it really runs the gamut. As I said, there are 13, uh, sorry, 12 different classifications. And so depending on what the classification is, there are services which follow. So if a child has learning disabilities, whether dyslexia or difficulties with reading or tracking words, there are supports that can be provided that help them to read. If a child has attentional difficulties, a school district can help through a document called an IEP, an Individualized Education Plan, to build in support so that the teacher and the other adults in the classroom can help the child reframe and try to come back uh, to their objectives in class or on a test. A student who has difficulties with hearing or with speaking could get different kind of speech therapies or audio therapies. A student who has difficulties with math and with counting and dysgraphia could get extra support with math. So really, again, in the perfect world with unlimited resources and people in agreement, a student can receive all kinds of supports as well as physical therapy for students with physical disabilities all in school and through the school uh, and at the district's expense. But of course, we don't live in a perfect world. And at what point does a school advocate attorney like yourself get involved in this process? 
so I'm going to speak only for myself as a solo practitioner who only works in this field. This is my niche. This is where my heart is and my, my mind. I try to get involved, believe it or not, as late as possible. What I mean by that is I take consultations from families who make inquiry and I listen closely to where they are in a process. As I said, some families are reluctant to even have a classification. Other families have the wrong classification and don't even realize it. And so the problem with that is they go to what's called a CSE meeting, a Committee on Special Education meeting, and they're completely ill-served because they don't understand what's available to them and their child. They don't understand how the accommodations and services that their child may or may not receive are contingent on the classification, and they don't necessarily understand how long the district is obligated to them, which is for the length of not only up through high school graduation, but in some instances all the way up to the age of 21. And so because they don't understand that, they inadvertently are waiving all kinds of things for their child. But I need to answer you more fully and explain why it is I come in as late as possible. I often counsel my families who do reach out to me I counsel them from behind the scenes, I coach them as it were, and I try to empower them so they can advocate for themselves at the CSE table for as long as possible. And the reason for that is because by definition, when a family goes into a CSE meeting, a Committee on Special Education meeting with an attorney, and I am an attorney and I have to disclose that, the school district also comes with their attorney. And so by definition, the meetings become, whether more adversarial or not, more the stakes are higher, even without acrimony. And so I try to empower the families to go in without an attorney to the extent that they can, but with knowledge. If and when they go to CSE and things don't go as planned, they can always revert back and for the next CSE meeting, retain counsel. And at that point, I would, of course, attend with such a family. And then if things continue to not go well, meaning the family is not obtaining for their student, their child, what they need, then my advice follows. And so there is the opportunity to go to hearing, but I would like to talk to you more about that. Okay. So what are some tips that you have for parents who may notice that their children either are having difficulty in school or perhaps they've already tried to make some efforts through the school district and have been unsuccessful? What should they do? Well, there's a whole bunch of things that are, I think, not obvious. Just as I said, the, the fact that this is even a legal issue for some families is not obvious. So the first thing they need to understand is that they're almost in a pre-litigation posture. And there's certain things that follow from that. So the first is every interaction that they have really ought to be followed up with a writing to create a record so that if and when they end up in a litigation, they have something to show for it. So often you'll hear families who say, I spoke to so-and-so, I spoke to the guidance counselor, I spoke to the school psychologist, they said they're gonna call me. No, there needs to be a writing. And of course, on the other side of this, the districts know not to put things in writing. So that becomes a little bit curious for the families. The second thing families, I think, need to understand about their children's education is that they really should try to separate out their emotions about it from what it is the student actually needs. So that's, of course, a huge undertaking. All of my clients, and frankly, every parent I know cares deeply about our children, and we can get emotional about them. And so to see a child struggling in school and to know that it might even be 
due to a disability, it's painful. And unpacking that and separating it from what the student actually needs and then what the student is actually entitled to, because it's not carte blanche, but what the student is entitled to, these are where I come in and help the families sort of refine the asks in a respectful way where they are still engaging with the school district, but also creating that record if and when it should be necessary. And now we're going to move on to another topic called what is on your desk, a recent client or matter which you can use to illustrate a teachable legal moment to our listeners. So uh, Rebecca, what is on your desk? So part of my practice, which is already a niche, you know, representing students, but there are two other niches to this. One is students who are suspended from school and another is families and kids who are looking for an alternative placement. So going back uh, for a moment to suspensions, nowadays students are getting suspended for all kinds of things from school. And principals have the authority in New York State to suspend for up to five days for pretty much anything. I mean, I'm being very facetious when I say that, but codes of conduct are written such in such a way that if a principal thinks that a student should be out of the building for any reason having to do with safety or insubordination or things of that nature, the student could be suspended for up to five days. Beyond five days, it becomes what's called a superintendent suspension. And that's also a legal regulation that allows a superintendent under section 3214 of the education law to suspend a student for longer than five days. So increasingly I'm seeing a lot of boys, but I mean, it could also be girls who get suspended for things that even 10 years ago, they might not have been suspended for. When a student is suspended and is also a classified student, a student who is classified under special education law, then they have a potential of demonstrating at hearing that what they are suspended for, the thing that they did for which they are suspended is substantially related to their disability. If it can be shown that it is substantially related to their disability, then they can't be suspended for it. So in terms of a specific case that comes to mind, there's two that I've uh, worked on recently. One is still ongoing. I have a student in a Long Island district who is 18 years old, a male, uh, autistic, nonverbal, and was suspended from school for masturbating. And his parents want him back in school. His parents want to find him a setting where he can still continue to thrive and also be cared for by school district employees because obviously it's expensive to find a one-to-one aide on their own 24-7. And so what to do with this young man? And where we uh, ended up so far is he was denied re-entry to his school, which was appalling to all of us at the table. He was suspended from school He was at home for months with an aide that his parents had to pay for. He was receiving only two hours a day of home instruction for the duration of his suspension. Law allows uh, in suspension matters for students who have an IEP, that is students who are classified, to attempt to demonstrate that the reason for the behavior for which they were suspended is substantially related to their disability. So in this instance, at the manifestation determination hearing, we tried to persuade the hearing officer that the student couldn't help what he did when he self-stimulated. 
We were unsuccessful. The district wanted him out. He was home for months with an aide at his parents' expense while we tried to find another, while his parents tried to find another setting for him to be accepted to that they too would accept. And so in that instance, what you're seeing is the dovetailing between the suspension law, the special education law, and what is ultimately also not only an emotional decision, but a placement decision, which has financial consequences for families because this child's schooling costs easily $100,000 a year. So what ended up happening, and what frequently happens in these cases as a statistical matter, is that the family filed for an impartial hearing, suing the school district for denying their child a free and appropriate public education, for suspending him arbitrarily, and for the monies, the tuition that they would need to spend to enroll him in a private school. What about the safety and feeling of comfort for the other students in the school, as well as the teachers and other staff? Isn't there a balancing act between the needs of the child here, an 18-year-old, needs of a child, and everyone else? Of course, and that's why there is law on and regulations on these matters, because of course, while I am in these instances I'm describing to you representing the rights of the families and the students, there of course are interests on the other side, the public interest, the school, the students that they're trying to educate, the staff, or many of them unionized or not, and so there are many, many um, other issues at play, but for the sake of what I do and for my clients, we're looking at advocating for students to obtain as much in terms of an education and accommodations and support, and frankly, to recoup the costs that which would otherwise be borne by families and which are prohibitively expensive. Okay, I'd like to move on to another subject, that of internet social media bullying and how you see that both manifesting itself in changes in the law as well as cases that you see in your own practice. Thanks for asking. That's actually a burgeoning area as well. Unfortunately, with the rise of the internet and social media platforms and so many different apps that Facebook is for dinosaurs at this point. The kids have TikTok, they have Instagram, they have um, Snapchat, and the list goes on and on. And they use these in ways to stalk one another, to bully one another, and of course, the law follows. So since law is a reaction for each one of these things that comes up, then we end up with policies and law trying to react to them. School districts were caught off guard and still are in some ways by these platforms. And as recently as 10 years ago, when kids were bullying one another on the internet off of school premises, it would be sad, but it would have no nexus to the school. Now, these days, especially in light of the rise of not just social media, but of anxiety, depression, drug abuse, and let's face it, school safety concerns having to do with um, school shootings, the climate is such that almost all schools that I'm aware of have zero tolerance policies. And so as a result, going back to the suspension cases, more and more kids are being suspended more and more frequently for bullying and for um, whether it's done at school or not is frankly irrelevant. 
Of course, the state also has passed policies called the Dignity for All Students Act, and actually this year also revised the human rights law to contemplate bullying and to protect students as well as other people who are in protected classes, whether on gender or ethnicity or religion. But there's very little in terms of financial recovery for students based on that. And so most families, when they come to me, are just distraught because their child is being bullied. And even where they want to bring an action, a tort action for distress or for some alleged harm, they are at a disadvantage, frankly, because the school districts, to your point from before, have to look out for the totality of the building, the staff and all of the other students. And so it's much easier to just suspend. I understand that you are a sitting trustee of a local school district. How does that affect the way you practice law? So I was in this practice area representing students before I was elected a trustee of the schools where I live. And of course, it means that I no longer take cases in the area where I live because I would in effect be suing myself. Um, However, uh, it is very informative and helpful to me in my practice that I sit as a trustee of a district because I now have additional perspective on what's at play on the district side when families and districts don't see eye to eye. And I'm able to give that kind of perspective to my clients. And of course, that is helpful to them because the law on special education in particular and on tuition reimbursement in particular is entirely based and predicated on consensus. And while there isn't always consensus and there is room for going to hearing and suing a district, Hearing officers in their analysis are permitted to look at the balance of the equities and are are permitted to basically gauge with whom they have the most sympathy. And I'm always very careful to coach and educate my clients to understand that as much as I'm telling them to create a record and document their interactions with the school district, and as much as they need to know their child's rights to a free and appropriate public education, and as well as they need to know how to guide their children when and if they're suspended so that they don't exacerbate it uh, and just rely on their First Amendment rights, thinking that that's a ticket to freedom and back into school. As much as I tell them that, I am also very careful to tell them that they need to at least present as cooperative with a district for as long as possible not just because it's the nice thing to do, but because if and when they are ever adhering and they are presenting a case before a neutral third party, they need to know that their lack of cooperativeness, whether it is at CSE or to go and visit a school that's being recommended for a placement or what have you, can and will be used against them and may end up meaning that they will not get the reimbursement or the outcome that they desire. So for that reason, I am glad that I have the perspective as a trustee, but frankly, the law already told me that, and as did my experience as a New York State certified IEP IEP facilitator. So I'm happy to bring all those perspectives to bear for my clients. And that's it for our 33rd episode. Thank you, Rebecca Sassuni, for coming on the podcast today. 
Zahava, it was a pleasure to meet you, and I look forward to hearing from some of your listeners. Okay, and to our listeners, be sure to download this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you are there, please rate us with a review that might start. I just heard on the LI Law podcast that as of January 15, 2020, a new New York state law went into effect, which grants adoptees the right to obtain their birth certificates, which right they did not have before. On that day, more than 1,700 requests were submitted from areas of the state outside New York City. New York City requests were expected to be even higher. The old law, which dates back to 1936, was intended to protect parents, many of whom had been unmarried mothers, from being contacted by their children later in life. Now adoptees may obtain their full original birth certificates, including health histories and the identity of both biological parents. The LA Law Podcast lets you know what's going on on Long Island and is your podcast for local tips which educate and entertain. Thanks for listening.